line. Amen? We're going to wrap up James today. And I'm very excited about that. We've been in James for a good, a good bit. James has covered a variety of topics for us to help us have a faith that works, that makes a difference in our lives, in our family, community, and the world around us. And in this book, James has given us a number of commands and several warnings. For example, in James 2.10, he said, For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. Put that verse up there, please, James 2.10. Yeah, you keep the entire law, yet stumble in one point. You're guilty of breaking it all. And James goes on to say that means we're lawbreakers. What do we do about that? Well, a couple of verses later, he says, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. Aren't you grateful for that? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, James plays off both of these ideas here in the last two verses of his letter. We cannot perfectly keep God's law. Okay, We're, we're prone to ignore God's warnings. In this life, we're not yet glorified. We're not perfected. We're in process. God's still working on us. And thank God, His mercy triumphs over judgment. And if God's mercy is enough to triumph over my sins, and He is an infinitely holy God, if it spares me from judgment, how can I then ever put myself in judgment over another person? Right? I'm not infinitely holy. If God's mercy can triumph over judgment that I deserve, certainly I shouldn't try to judge other people. Since God's mercy has been upon me, I must show mercy on my fellow sinners. Amen? I need to extend that mercy to others. And so James here calls us to look out for one another as we struggle, as we stumble, as sometimes we even fall, that, that we let that mercy of God overflow from our lives into the lives of those around us. And sometimes that means we mercifully get in each other's way. And we speak truth to each other and we, we, we turn one another back when it's been described we start to stray off that path and get off course. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need a community of Christians, the church, to be there, to spur us on toward love and good deeds, to encourage us to fight the good fight, to, to finish the race and to keep the faith. So let's look at James chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth, and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James presents us with a problem. The problem is straying from the truth. But sometimes we stray from God's truth. Now James writes, brothers, my brothers and sisters, if any of you stray from the truth. Now that, that phrase, my brothers and sisters, James uses that six times in his letter. And it's a precious phrase for us as Christians because it reminds us of the privilege that we enjoy as members of God's family. That we have been set free. We are no longer citizens of the dominion of darkness. We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We're no longer enslaved to the powers of Satan. We've been set free to live in that law of freedom. 
as members of God's family, does that mean that we never stray from the truth? Does that mean we never get off course and wonder? Of course not. And does that mean that we lose our salvation? Is that what James is talking about? Or some people read this, and that's what they read it as, that James is talking about somebody who's a Christian. They lose their way. They lose their salvation. They're now a lost sinner. And if we want to save their soul, we've got to turn them back. But I'm going to tell you, that's not what James is saying. The Bible is very clear on the eternal security of the believer, which means that when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are secure for all of eternity because of what Jesus accomplished for you on the cross of Calvary. It's through His constant intercession to the Father on our behalf. It's because of His Holy Spirit that seals our souls for the day of redemption. Our efforts had nothing to do with gaining our salvation. Amen? And so our efforts have nothing to do with keeping it either. I did nothing to earn or deserve being saved, therefore I can do nothing to lose my salvation. If you have been adopted into the family of God, you're a son or daughter of the King forever, period, full stop. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 10, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Eternal, never-ending, never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Nobody can take you from the hand of God when you put yourself in Christ Jesus by, by God's grace through faith. So, what then does James mean when he talks about a Christian a brother or sister straying, wandering from the truth. Well, first you need to define some terms. What's that word straying or wandering? Well, it's the Greek word planeo. Planeo, by the way, is the word we get the word planet from. Planet is in a heavenly wanderer. So that word planeo means to wander. It means to go astray. It means to be deceived or to be misled in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. That's the Greek Bible that, that, the, uh, that the apostles and the disciples would read in the Greek. It says in Deuteronomy 27, 18, the one who leads a blind person astray on the road is cursed. So there's that word planeo, to lead astray. Right? You're deceiving someone. You're leading them astray. Proverbs 28, 10, the one who leads the upright into an evil way will fall into his own pit. So that's planeo, leading into an evil way, the wrong way. In Exodus 14, 3, it says, Pharaoh will save the Israelites. They are wandering around in the land of confusion. The wilderness has boxed them in, wandering around as if you're confused. That's planeo. Psalm 118, 176, I wander like a lost sheep. So you get the picture. This word means to be led astray into an evil path, to wander around in confusion like a lost sheep. And by the way, it's the same word Jesus uses in the parable of the shepherd that leaves the ninety and nine to go after the lost, the wayward sheep. Maybe that's what James is picturing when he writes this, a Christian who's wandered away from the flock. They've wandered away from the family of God and, and they're in the ways of the world. They've been cut off from the fellowship of the saints. They're, they're wandering around in a land of confusion, boxed in by the wilderness of sin. Or maybe he's thinking of the wayward son from Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You know, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're a prodigal son or daughter today. 
We've all known prodigal sons and daughters. Maybe at some time we've been that prodigal son or daughter to stray away from the faith, from the church, but then you come back to your senses and you come back home to the truth, to the Father. After 27 years of ministry, I've known people who did that, who, who strayed and wandered away from the truth. And, and when that happens, it's heartbreaking, it's disappointing, it's discouraging. You start to question yourself, you know, is it somebody who's been in ministry working with this person? And you start, you know, what, where did I mess up? Where did I fail? Was I not a good enough example? Was there something more I could have said, I could have done? What did I miss? And I know for parents whose children stray from the truth, they're raised in church, professed faith in Christ, but later they, they wander from the truth. I know how painful and difficult that is because I've, I've sat and listened to parents like that. I've, I've cried with them and I've prayed with them. And maybe their kid went off to college and became influenced by friends or professors or just a, a culture that's godless and, and hostile to Christianity. Maybe they got involved in, in drugs and alcohol. They, they kind of fell into that, that party scene and engaged in promiscuous behavior. Maybe they even got into trouble with the law. And you ask, how does this happen? How does this happen? How is it that someone who claims to be a Christian, who supposedly has the Spirit of God living within them, who's been bought by the blood of Christ, how can that kind of person stray from the truth? Well, I think the first possibility we have to consider is that maybe this person never was truly a Christian. You know, you can grow up in church... You can walk the aisle and shake a preacher's hand and get wet in the baptistry and have, have never truly put saving faith in Jesus Christ. Never given your life over to Jesus. Billy Graham put it this way. He said, No man can be said to be truly converted to Christ who has not bent his will to Christ. He may give intellectual assent to the claims of Christ, may have had emotional religious experiences, however, he is not truly converted changed, transformed until he has surrendered his will to Christ as Lord and Savior. This is why in every sermon I lay out at some point the basics of the gospel and the plan of salvation. That's why every invitation, I make an invitation for people to come to saving faith in Jesus. You may say, David, aren't we all just home folks here? Yes, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're all sons and daughters of the King. There's a transformation that takes place when you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Paul calls it becoming a new creation. Jesus calls it being born again. James says that if you have faith, you'll show your faith by your works, by how you live your life. But James is specifically addressing what I believe are Christians. Okay? He's, while there can be people in church that aren't saved, I believe that James is writing to Believers, and he is talking about a genuine believer who has wandered from the, the truth. They are still saved even though they are straying. And this straying from the truth involves two areas of our lives that are deeply connected with one another. Whenever a, a brother or sister departs from the truth, they do it in two areas. One, it's either an error in their belief or an error in their behavior. They either are straying in their lifestyle or they're straying in their theology, in the teachings. 
And likely it's both. Because let's be honest, an error in one almost always leads to an error in the other, right? I mean, you can't believe one thing and it not influence your behavior. You can't live one way and it not begin to influence your thinking. Oftentimes people will change their beliefs to accommodate or justify a lifestyle choice or, or a moral behavior that they've engaged in. Or maybe they know and love somebody who's straying from the truth and engaging in things that are unbiblical and so they think the loving thing to do is just to follow right along behind them. And they accommodate their beliefs to that behavior. Today, we're seeing a rapid and widespread paradigm shift in, our, in Western society, not just in our country, regarding human sexuality and marriage. And I have to ask, has there been some historic, world-shaking scientific discovery that has changed how we should view human biology and reproduction and sex? If so, I've missed that. Has there been some inexplicable major jump in evolution, if you believe in that sort of thing, in the past four or five years? I don't think so. Has every major religion, philosophy, and every successful society in human history been wrong all this time about human flourishing and family and male and female relationships? I don't think so. No, what we're seeing is a rapid cultural shift in values, in where you go to get your authority, in moral boundaries. What we're witnessing is Western society rejecting 2,000 years of Judeo-Christian values and morals in favor of what amounts to a radical, transgressive individualism that elevates the individual, the person, their desires, their self-identity above and against the community and the roles and responsibilities that come in healthy relationships. That's what we're seeing. And that's why so many are struggling with these issues and desires today. Their thoughts and their feelings are confused. They're wandering in a land of confusion. Because they hear one message from Bible-believing Christians and churches, and they hear another message from the world. And which of those two is easier to follow? It's the world, right? It's the broad path that Jesus talks about that everyone's on and it leads to destruction. The world will embrace you and will will celebrate your desires. The world's not going to call you to deny yourself, to take up your cross, to die daily. The world will give you special status and privilege and power and and, and tell you that you're free now from the oppressive traditional roles and responsibilities of the past. There are no moral guidelines. Just be your authentic self. Follow your heart. This is what Demas was guilty of when he abandoned Paul on his mission in 2 Timothy 4.10. Paul says, Demas has deserted me since he loved this present world. Remember what James said about loving this world in chapter 4, verse 4. James said, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. I think that's why we have so many people confused and straying today. They're becoming friends of the world, not realizing that makes them enemies of God. Because to love this present world, to befriend this world, is to live like the world. It's to adopt worldly values. It's to align your life with worldly priorities. It's to stray from the truth. 
So some people begin with this, this lifestyle, this behavior, this, this moral choice that they decide this is what is good, this is what, these are the values and priorities I'm going to have, and they accommodate their beliefs to that. But for others, it begins with false doctrine. It begins up here, and it affects the way they live. It changes their values. A few verses later, after Paul talks about Demas, he warns Timothy about Alexander. And Alexander and Demas are perfect pictures of this. Demas loved the present world, and thereby he rejected the truth. But he says of Alexander that Alexander opposed the teachings of Paul and did great harm to his ministry. This is someone who strayed from the doctrinal truth and it affected their, their life and their relationships. It changed the way they acted. We have to remember the theme of James is that our beliefs and our behaviors are intertwined. You can't easily separate one for the other because one will always either reflect or affect the other. Ours is a faith that works. Our beliefs dictate our behaviors. Whereas Jesus said in John 3.21, But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light. Now the literal Greek there is that anyone who does the truth, who does the truth. Now we think of believing truth. We think of speaking truth. But Jesus says whoever does the truth, his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. He comes to the light, he says. So truth isn't just something you believe. Truth is something you do. Truth is something you act on. Truth is something that you live out. And so wandering from the truth is a dangerous course to chart because it leads us, as being illustrated, it leads us further and further into the wilderness, further and further away from the path, further and further away from what is real and trustworthy and dependable. And we end up building our lives on the sinking sand of cultural whims because we've rejected the unchanging solid rock of God's Word. And the further we go down that path, the colder our faith grows. The more distant we feel from God, the more cut off we feel from God's people. The more we resist and quench His Spirit, the less of His power we can access. Our prayers become powerless. Our witness, our reputation are damaged. We begin to experience both the natural and spiritual consequences of our sin and we lose the joy of our salvation. I didn't say we lose our salvation. We lose the joy of our salvation. Become like the prodigal son, progressively sinking deeper and deeper into sin until we're sleeping with the pigs and hungry for their slop. We become like David after his sins of adultery and murder and lies. In Psalm 32, David describes what it was like for him when he wandered from the truth. He describes how his, his bones became brittle from groaning all day. How God's hand was heavy on him all night and all day. He said his strength was sapped from him as if in the heat of summer. But then, he goes on to say in verse 5, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and you did not and, and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. What made the difference? 
What made the difference for David being this adulterous murderer who's covering it up and lying about it and living in misery because of it and then somebody who's confessing his sins and repenting it before the Lord and experiencing the peace of forgiveness? What made the difference? Well, we know from this story in 2 Samuel the difference was that David had someone in his life who cared enough about him to confront him with the truth. And that was a man by the name of Nathan. He was a prophet of God. He dared stand before the king and called him to account for his sin and he helped turn David from his sin back to his shepherd. And that's the plan. James has given us the problem, straying from the truth, but here's the plan. Turn back the sinner. Turn back the sinner. We have a family responsibility to those who have wandered from the truth to turn them back. Now that word turn back is a Greek word that means to convert. And it's the word that's used when it talks about somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ, but it also can simply mean a course correction. In fact, it's a nautical term that means to will about. It means to make a sudden tack, to change directions because you realize you're going the wrong way. Jesus used this same word to warn Peter of his waywardness that was going to happen on the night Jesus was betrayed. Jesus says to Peter in Luke 22, He said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. When you have turned back, that's the same word that James uses. Peter would experience a terrible but temporary wandering away. But after the resurrection, Jesus is going to come back to Peter, meet him on that beach, and gently restore him to the right path and then give him the charge of taking care of the disciples and the soon-to-be newborn church. Today, there is a growing, concerning, deconversion movement that's especially happening among millennials. It's largely fueled by social media. And they'll, they'll get on mainly TikTok, maybe YouTube, and they will proudly post these videos claiming that they're no longer Christians. They're turning their back on the faith of their youth. And they usually have some straw man argument that they think is clever, they have some theological question that they intend to stump people of faith. You know, and they, they have this question or they have this doubt and they, they issue it as if nobody's ever thought of this before, right? As if there isn't centuries of theologians that have debated and written about this, this question, right? But they put it out there like, ah, you see, I gotcha. And I've watched many of these videos and I've talked to people who are experiencing this. And what I've noticed is that these deconversions almost always begin with a moral question, a behavior question, not a belief question, not a theological question. And the argument is usually an emotional one, not a logical one, and it's usually around some issue, some social issue like homosexuality or abortion or gender or something like that. Now, sometimes it is a theological problem. That they, they just have a problem with the reality of miracles. They have a problem with the creation narrative. They, they don't you know, believe in hell or the exclusivity of Christ. Sometimes it's a theological issue. But whether it's theological or it's behavioral, they have wandered from the truth. They're chasing after the wind and they're going to end up reaping the whirlwind. 
But listen, just as Nathan turned David's heart back to God, just as Jesus restored Peter, just as Barnabas helped to reconcile John Mark, we must be willing to do the same with those that we love and know who are straying from the truth. If you love someone and you know they're on the wrong path and you know they're headed in a dangerous direction, would you not do whatever you could to stand in their way? To head them off at the pass? To point them back to the right path? Would you not do that? I would hope so. Sadly, we've become conditioned to think we've got to mind our own business. And so we excuse ourselves from the responsibility. Or we limit ourselves to just praying for them. And listen, like I talked about last week, prayer is important. Prayer is the first thing you should do for this person. And you should pray for God's wisdom and grace. You should pray for compassion and mercy and patience. But you pray for that so that you can then do something so that you can go after this person and pursue them, not leave them to their own devices, not just say, well, they'll figure it out eventually. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. We must pursue them. And Paul gives us some warnings and instructions in how to do this the right way in Galatians chapter 6. He says, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin caught in a sin. They've wandered from the truth. They've strayed from the path. They're, they're, they're caught up like a, like a fish in a net. You who live by the Spirit should restore that person. How? Publicly? Humiliating them? Taking a big old Bible and whacking them over the head with it? No. Gently. You do it gently. Sometimes that means slowly. Patiently. And then he says that we must do it also humbly. He said, but watch yourselves, or you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are someone when they are not, they deceive themselves. So we do it gently, but we also do it humbly, acknowledging that there, but for the grace of God, go I. I could very easily be caught in that sin. I could very easily be straying from the truth with them. So we're humble. We're patient. We remember we're not trying to win an argument. We're trying to win a soul, a relationship, a person. And when we do, God makes a promise. We've seen the problem, the plan. Here's the promise in verse 20. That the Christian who reclaims a wayward brother or sister is accomplishing something great. And James says he wants us to know. He says in verse 20, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Two things we accomplish, two promises from God. One, when you turn a wayward brother or sister back, you will save their life. Now, first, he uses this word sinner. Now, Jesus and Paul, like James here, use this to talk about somebody who is a follower of Jesus, is a Christian, but they're living like a sinner. Both Jesus and Paul talk about treating an unrepentant, wayward believer as if they're lost. And say that they were lost, so treat them as if they're lost so that they may later then be restored. Sometimes we have to go through what David experienced before we can turn back to God in repentance. See what I'm saying? Sometimes, like Peter, we've got to spend the night weeping over what we have done to Jesus and how we have disobeyed Him and how we have let Him down before we can be restored. 
sort of like a quote that I saw last night from Coach Josh Heupel. You guys knew I had to bring up the Tennessee game, right? For a Tennessee fan, it was a very embarrassing defeat. But listen to what Josh Heupel said at the end of the, in his press conference last night. He said, for us, for this program, this one needs to hurt on the way back home. For us to grow as a program, you've got to look at this opportunity and understand what happened. Let it hurt and remember that as you move forward. Let it help you grow. Sometimes God lets it hurt. Sometimes we have to sit in the mess that we've made. Sometimes we have to wrestle and struggle with feeling the heavy hand of God on us all day and all night before it can help us grow and we learn from it. So yes, sometimes we are sinners in the error of our ways even though we belong to Jesus. Last week we talked about how certain sins can even lead to physical illness or death. So when James says that you save their life, he could be literally. You might have somebody who's engaged in something, they're following a path that could literally end in their death. But it doesn't have to be that. It doesn't have to be literal. When he uses this word life or soul, some translations might say life, some say soul, that's the Greek word psyche. Where we get like our psyche, like psychology, okay? personality, that sort of thing, psyche. Now this is opposed to the Greek word for spirit, which is pneuma. So you've got psyche and pneuma, you've got soul and spirit. Soul in the Greek in the New Testament is often used to refer to our life on this earth. Or it can refer to the totality of being, body, mind, and spirit. The totality of who I am as opposed to just what is spiritual. So in other words, when James says save their soul, what he means is save who they are. Save their life. And even if it's not their literal life, you save their life in the sense that you help bring them back to the fullness of Christ. You restore them to fellowship with God and with other Christians. You restore to them the joy of their salvation and help them re-engage in the work of Christ's mission in their life. When you turn a sinner back from the error of their way, James says, you saved their life. Well, that's pretty amazing. When you think about somebody saving someone's life, that's like hero stuff, isn't it? That's like firefighters running into a burning building kind of stuff. You and I have the power to do that when we see someone in our life that's straying from the truth. But secondly, he promises you'll also cover their sins. Now, to me, this one's even more amazing. The Greek word here is calypto for cover. It's the opposite of apocalypto. I'll say that right. Apocalypto is the word we get for apocalypse, right? Now, apocalypse doesn't mean some world-ending asteroid hitting the earth, right? We understand that. The Greek word apocalypse means revelation. It means an unveiling. It means to reveal what is hidden. So, calypto, to cover, it literally means to cover, to, to veil, to hide, to keep secret. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew 5 when He says, don't hide your light under a basket. Don't cover it. And I think here James is also pointing us back to the mercy seat, the lid over the Ark of the Covenant that contains the Ten Commandments. The Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat, is where the manifest glory of God dwelled in the tabernacle and in the temple. 
And once a year, the high priest would go into that Holy of Holies. He would take the blood from the sacrificial lamb. He would pour it on that mercy seat and the blood would cover the mercy seat so that when God looked down, He no longer saw the broken covenant, the broken law. He saw the blood of the lamb shed to cover the sins. And of course, this points us to the ultimate sacrificial lamb, Jesus Christ, whose blood not only covers our sins, but removes our guilt from us so that God sees us as holy and righteous. James says that when we win back someone who's wandered from the truth, it's like we've covered their sins. And not just one or two sins. He says a multitude. That's the Greek word plethora. We cover a plethora of sins. Now, how, do you, how can you and I do that? Because when we restore someone from the error of their ways, when we extend that mercy to them that God has extended to us, we remind them that the blood of Jesus covers all their sin, past, present, and future. Even the sins committed by a wayward Christian are forgiven in Christ. That's why we don't lose our salvation. The Father is always standing looking down that road, ready to receive back that prodigal son. Jesus is always ready to leave the 99 and go look for that wayward lamb. Always. This morning, are you straying from His path? Are you wandering from the truth today? Maybe you're a sinner and you're in the error of your ways. Listen, it's never too late to come to your senses and leave behind the pigsty of worldly philosophy and the stench of sin. It's never too late. The Father is always standing with open arms ready to receive you back home. And listen, it doesn't have to be some big flashy sin. It doesn't have to be some, you know, just rethinking everything kind of thing. Sometimes it means that you're just harboring bitterness in your heart about your situation in life. Sometimes it's just that you are unforgiving towards somebody. And it's eating you up inside. Maybe it's that you've become a gossip or a worrier or you're caught up in a partying lifestyle or in marital infidelity. Maybe you've simply grown cold in your faith and you've grown disengaged from the church. Maybe, not because you're not able to, but because it's just so comfortable, you've just grown a little too comfortable with sitting at home and worshiping on the computer. Well, there's no reason why you can't be here in fellowship with the, with the people of God. What would you do this morning if that's you? My prayer is that here in a moment you'll come to this altar, come to me, whatever God lays on your heart, and you will recommit yourself to the path. That You'll say, Father, I want to come back home. Forgive me for my straying and my wandering. Help me to return to you and follow your path. God wants you to do that today and rededicate your life to Jesus Christ. Maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe there's somebody God is bringing to your mind right now that you know that they're a Christian, you know that they know better, you know that they were raised different, but you know that they've gone astray. How might God want you to be a Nathan to them? A Barnabas to them? A James to them? To lovingly, patiently, gently help them correct their course. Maybe you need to come and pray at this altar for that person and commit yourself to God to be that Nathan to stand before them and to help them. Maybe God's laid something else on your heart today. Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You can't stray from a truth you've never known. 
You can't wander from a path you've never started on. Maybe for you today, you know in your heart that you don't know Jesus Christ. You've never asked Him to forgive you of your sins. You've never begun a relationship with the living God. He stands ready today to help you begin anew as a new creation born again in Christ Jesus. Whatever the Spirit of God is laying on your heart, maybe you don't even know what it is. Maybe you just know you need to come. We'll figure it out when you get down here. If the Spirit of God is prompting you, I pray you would respond right now. Let's stand and pray. Then we will sing and you will come. Father, we are so grateful that you are a God of infinite grace and mercy and that your mercy triumphs over judgment. You long to forgive. You're ready to pour out that grace on whoever will ask for it, Father. And maybe there's someone here today right now that is in desperate need of your grace. For whatever, for coming to saving faith in Jesus or for coming back home after straying from the path or for praying for wisdom and strength to reach out to somebody that they know is lost in a land of confusion. Father, whatever Your Spirit is speaking, may we be obedient not just in this moment, but in the days and weeks to come. In Jesus' name we pray.